The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Administrator Power, thank you for coming before the committee to testify on the administration's proposed budget for USAID. We look forward to your testimony, getting a better understanding of your vision for opera operationalizing the budget request. Uh, let me start by saying that for the first time in a few years, I'm pleased to see the budget restores the principles of defense, diplomacy, and development, the three Ds, as equal elements critically important to the success of U.S. foreign policy. As we know, foreign assistance, development aid, and humanitarian relief are not charity programs. USAID programs around the world are concrete manifestations of American values and the partnership of the American people. Aid personnel in the field work in tandem with local partners and communities, building sustainable programs to promote health programs, private sector development, governance reforms, and desperately needed relief. This work lifts people out of poverty, improves lives, and also helps build society's uh, resiliency to predatory economic practices masquerading as development. The Biden budget requests increase for development assistance, the Economic Support Fund, the Asian, Eastern European, and Central Asia program, and other demonstrate a renewed seriousness and interest in international cooperation. The budget requests for programs that support democracy promotion, improve food security, build resilience capacities, address the climate crisis, and promote equitable and inclusive economic growth will be critical to realigning U.S. foreign policies with that of our allies and addressing the needs of vulnerable and fragile countries. Under President Biden's leadership, the United States is gradually gaining control of COVID-19. However, the disease is surging around the world. Deadly third waves in Latin America, Africa, and Asia have cost thousands of lives, overwhelmed fragile health systems, and disrupted livelihoods. We know all too well that other countries' ability to combat these kinds of deadly and contagious viruses directly impacts the health and safety of all Americans. USAID is playing a critical role in the U.S. overseas response in combating new and emerging variants that threaten our fragile progress and the livelihoods of Americans. I look forward to discussing USAID's plans for supporting global vaccine distribution, advancing the global health security agenda, and strengthening pandemic preparedness. Finally, there are regional challenges that have never been greater, and I look forward to understanding how you are positioning USAID to address ongoing crises. In Latin America and the Caribbean, we are witnessing severe challenges to democratic governance and the pandemic is exacerbating the region's social and economic inequalities, driving people to new levels of desperation for fundamental rights and freedoms. In recent weeks, we have seen the assassination of Haitian President Moise, the unprecedented mobilization of thousands of Cubans demanding their freedom, the consolidation of the region's third dictatorship in Nicaragua, and a contested election in Peru. And the administration is rightly prioritizing efforts to address the drivers of migration from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, starting with strengthening democratic institutions and good governance, growing economic opportunity, and improving public safety. These crises pose risks to the stability of the hemisphere. Afghanistan's rapid deterioration poses a serious national security risk. 
Many of our Afghan partners who champion democracy and human rights are unable to apply for the special immigrant visa program or other existing channels to protect Afghan allies. I urge you to accelerate your plans to address the potentially life-threatening situation these individuals face with the current U.S. withdrawal from the country. How we withdraw and what political arrangement is left in our wake matters deeply not just for U.S. interests, but also for the lives of these brave Afghan partners. Africa is facing numerous security and development challenges, the protracted conflict in Ethiopia, a fragile transition in Sudan, coups in Mali and Chad that are diminishing efforts to counter extremism in the Sahel, in Nigeria, the so-called anchor state in West Africa is beset by terrorism, conflict, and democratic backsliding. In the Middle East, we have to find ways to elevate USAID's role in helping promote good governance and private sector development in places where we have been more focused on military engagement. So I know how deeply inspired you are to ensure that USAID is leading the efforts to both prepare for the challenges ahead and to heal the wounds and sufferings of those affected in this complex world. We have full confidence in your abilities and look forward to hearing your vision for executing and communicating USAID's strategic vision for this year and beyond. You're running an immensely valuable institution, and I want to know what you're doing to empower and inspire the best from the people at USAID. Again, with our appreciation uh, to, for your work and for appearing before the committee, I turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, and thank you, Administrator Power, for being here today. This is uh, truly an important moment for U.S. foreign assistance. Thanks to American ingenuity and uh, swift vaccine rollout, our country is finally uh, opening back up for business. And yet, many countries around the world are still struggling to combat COVID-19. Uh, we've known since the beginning of this pandemic we will never be fully secure at home if we allow this disease to run rampant uh, abroad. Carefully planned and appropriately targeted U.S. foreign assistance can help other countries get a handle on their COVID-19 outbreaks and counter the second-order impacts of the pandemic. Congress has appropriated billions of dollars to USAID to this end. However, emergencies like these present numerous opportunities for fraud, waste, and abuse of taxpayer dollars. I'm interested to hear from you how USAID plans to use these resources while guarding against their misuse. Uh, Ms. Power, you and I have discussed the fact that Chairman Menendez and I recently introduced a bill intended to overall the US, uh, overhaul the U.S. global health security architecture. This bill would place the State Department firmly at the center of our global health security efforts by providing sorely needed foreign policy and aid coherence. It would also recognize and enshrine USAID's role as a prime implementer of U.S. global health security assistance. I hope to hear your thoughts uh, on this legislation. Uh, regarding Asia, I believe that advancing an effective strategy to compete with the People's Republic of China must be the United States' top policy priority. I expect that we will hear today about how the proposed USAID budget would address this strategic imperative and also how it would bolster U.S. engagement in the Indo-Pacific region as a whole. USAID should prioritize countering malign uh, foreign influence by authoritarian nations. This objective is also a key priority in the Strategic Competition Act legislation Senator Menendez and I authored, which recently passed our committee. 
I look forward to hearing the specifics of what USAID plans to do to counter this type of influence and where it plans to prioritize programming, uh, both in terms of geography and issues areas. It is notable that this malign influence is exercised not just through governments, but also through uh, multilateral institutions. The PRC's ability to co-opt and manipulate the international COVID-19 response through the World Health Organization and now through COVAX is appalling. I uh, hope to hear how USAID and you, as our representative uh, to COVAX, will shed light on the irony that China has contributed nothing to COVAX and yet now stands to profit from it when indeed they started this whole mess in the first place. If Afghanistan, uh, as uh, turning to Afghanistan, uh, since the withdrawal announcement, the Taliban have ramped up their attacks on government-held areas and now control almost a third of all districts. I'm deeply concerned that the administration's foreign assistance plans for Afghanistan do not reflect the reality on the ground. In truth, we will have a hard time implementing aid programs and providing the necessary oversight of taxpayer dollars given the increased instability in Afghanistan. Uh, I, appreciate, I have appreciated the administration's consultations with Congress on assistance to the Palestinian people. But as long as the Palestinian authorities continues its despicable uh, pay-for-slave program, uh, we will scrutinize every dollar to ensure it is compliant with the Taylor Force Act and other laws. The administration should uh, con con secure secession of the pay-for-slave before opening the floodgates of assistance. In recent years, the United States has committed more than $1 billion to support Sudan's fragile democratic transition. We must be good stewards of this assistance. While I recognize the need to live up to commitments under the Abraham Accords, including for wheat pur purchases, this must not come at the expense of commitments to democracy and human rights. My staff recently returned from Ethiopia, where they saw firsthand the efforts of USAID to help mi uh, mitigate the suffering of people in Tigray and other parts of the country. USA leadership uh, should follow the do-no-harm principle delivering assistance while leaving the politics of the, uh, of the U.S.-Ethiopia uh, bi bilateral relationship to the diplomats. I'm concerned by the proliferation of political crisis in the Western Hemisphere demanding immediate and substantive attention from the United States. We were all appalled by last week's assassination of Haiti's president and the attack on his wife and urge USAID to work with like-minded partners to help restore democratic order and self-reliance. The United States has spent close to $3.6 billion in foreign aid to northern Central America without much success in improving governance, conditions, or reducing illegal uh, migration from the region. Before committing additional substantial U.S. funds, the administration should describe how it will hold the governments in this region accountable for their commitments to improve government governance and protect would-be refugees arriving uh, at their borders. Likewise, the United States is the largest provider of foreign assistance to help Venezuela's neighbors manage the humanitarian crisis unleashed by the Maduro regime and its allies in Cuba, China, and Russia. USAID must make uh, absolutely certain that our humanitarian efforts do not legitimize the Maduro regime uh, in any way, or its foreign allies, for that matter. Thank you for being here today. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll go back. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, all right, Madam Administrator, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. I'd urge you to summarize it in about five minutes or so so we can have a discussion with you. And with that, uh, the floor is yours. <coughs> 
Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and esteemed members of the committee. Thank you also to your staff, uh, who are such great partners to USAID. Last month, I traveled to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador to hear directly from the people impacted by the cycles of poverty, violence, climate shocks, and corruption. And I traveled to assess and expand the impact U.S. assistance was having on their lives. What I saw there was a local reflection of global trends. People that continue to lose loved ones and suffer through lockdowns due to a still raging COVID-19 pandemic that has already left 4 million people dead around the world. Families that have been traumatized by more frequent and intense hurricanes and rare weather events, many in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. And as you indicated, everyday citizens who are angered by poor governance, autocratic behavior, and corruption that limits opportunity, investment, prosperity, and personal freedom. These various challenges are combining in volatile ways, culminating in frustration that drives people to the streets, as we've just seen this week in Cuba, rage that spills over into deadly conflict, as we have seen in Burma and the Tigray region of Ethiopia, and despair that causes people to flee their communities, as we've seen uh, in Central America and across the world with a level of mass displacement not seen since World War II. These are not positive developments, it is safe to say. But as an American, I am very glad that USAID is uniquely positioned to confront them. And I'm immensely grateful to you for sustaining support for the agency's vital programming. Your continued bipartisan support for USAID saves and improves millions of lives each day while enhancing US national and economic security. As we emerge from a once in a century pandemic and as we confront the inroads that China has made in different parts of the world by increasingly using its financial power as leverage to advance its interest. The FY22 budget request of 27.7 billion for foreign assistance funding fully or partially implemented by USAID will help us address urgent priorities and allow the United States to lead the world in providing development and humanitarian assistance to promote security and improved economic conditions. It will also allow the United States to lead on the global stage and to leverage our activities to inspire our allies and our private sector partners to contribute more. But in order for us to get the most out of our programs, we know we must also make ourselves a more capable and nimble agency at a time of heightened need. And to do this, we need to increase local partnerships and address staff shortfalls. Lasting solutions to development challenges require local organizations that have the insights to develop tailored solutions and the credibility to implement them. Yet, in FY 2020, USAID obligated approximately 5.6% to local partners around the world. To engage authentically with local partners and to move toward a more locally-led development approach is staff, time, and resource intensive, but it is also vital to our long-term success, to sustainable development. I look forward to engaging with you in the near future about how we can pursue flexible solutions that allow us to increase our level of local partnership while still carefully, vigilantly protecting taxpayer dollars. This budget that we are proposing will also help us build institutional capacity commensurate with USAID's role as a national security agency. 
Over the last two decades, the funding levels and complexity of our programs has expanded at a rate that significantly outpaces our staffing. Each USAID contracting officer, for instance, has managed over $65 million annually over the past four years, more than four times the workload of their colleagues at the Department of Defense who manage an average of about $15 million. Moving forward, we are seeking not a return to the previous status quo, but to work with members of Congress to increase our number of direct hires while maintaining a strong focus on creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive agency. With your support, USAID will move aggressively to tackle the world's toughest challenges in order to build a more stable and prosperous future for us all. I look forward to our continued partnership and here today to answering your questions. Thank you, Madam Administrator. We'll start uh, around the questions. Uh, first, let me say, um, I know that you mentioned to the ranking member and I before we started the hearing uh, that we have three highly qualified USAID nominees that are pending with completed files. Uh, and I, I also believe that we need to get them out of the committee and hopefully confirm prior to the August recess so you can do the work we want you to do. I'm prepared to notice a hearing for the two deputy nominees next Thursday and we will be working with the ranking member uh, to hopefully get an agreement so that we're in a good place so that we can try to move those uh, nominees uh, ahead. Uh, under the previous administration, USAID was frequently absent from budget planning and decision-making processes affecting the agency. Uh, how were you and the agency involved in the development of the FY22 budget that we're discussing today? Well, sir, I, I was not present um, from the creation personally, uh, just because of my own confirmation <coughs> schedule. Uh, so uh, I... Just in terms of my own personal involvement, I came in uh, after the top line levels had been assessed. But the agency was very much involved, working, of course, with the State Department. Um, uh, in many of the accounts uh, that are in the proposal are only partially managed by USAID. There's a division of labor entailed, uh, a, a natural synergy at, at its best uh, with the State Department. And then, of course, working with OMB to make sure that we are prioritizing uh, the president's priorities. And so I believe the, the involvement was intense and iterative. Mm -hmm. Now, let me turn to, to the COVID issue. The, the U.S. is gradually gaining control of COVID-19, but the disease continues to surge worldwide. Uh, most people on the planet are still waiting for vaccinations. The U.S. has made a range of announcements to support access, including vaccine donations to specific countries and support for sharing intellectual property. Uh, what additional steps can we take right now to accelerate the rollout of vaccines worldwide? For example, the president's vaccine donation announcement is significant, but there's still considerable need and demand for other means of mitigating the spread of COVID and the therapies for treating the sick. How does the 500 million dose donation fit into the administration's broader global cooperation strategy to beat COVID? 
Um, thank you so much. Uh, there are a number of different elements, as you say, to the broader strategy. And vaccines, of course, uh, rightly make global headlines. I believe the 500 million purchase uh, of the Pfizer doses is absolutely critical. Uh, that will be dispensed by uh, June of next year uh, with 200 million uh, distributed this year and 300 million the first part of next year alongside the 80 million surplus doses. But as, as you note, um, you know, uh, donating doses and getting shots in arms are, are two very different things. And so USAID, with our 80 missions around the world, is involved in enhancing vaccine readiness to make sure that the cold chains are in place in order to work with our partners, UNICEF, PAHO, and others, uh, as well as <coughs> health ministries uh, to make sure that the countries that receive the vaccines uh, uh, put them to good use, vaccinating health workers, providing second shots for those uh, who didn't have second shots delivered because the India doses uh, were pulled back because of India's own crisis. Um, so vaccine readiness is key, and the ARP money has been uh, vital uh, to USAID's ability to, to support our partners. As you note, though, uh, vaccines, uh, because of the supply issues around the world, are, are only going to reach a small share of the world's population uh, in the next calendar year. Therefore, uh, you know, whether it comes to, to PPE or oxygen or other forms of uh, health support that went by the wayside because of the attention to COVID or the shattering of health systems brought about by the arrival of COVID, uh, U.S. funding for those health systems and those other dimensions of the COVID response is also critical. And again, the ARP made... Yeah, let me um, ask you, you mentioned the, AR, the ARP funds, the uh, you notified Congress on $115 million in ARP funds for accelerating vaccine distribution and the president's announcement in Cornwall to purchase 500 million doses, uh, which spurred matching commitments from G7 partners. Uh, is this 115 million the amount necessary to fulfill the entire 500 million dose commitment? Well, let me just say that the, I believe, and you would know better than I, it was before my time, but but that when the ARP was was passed, again, so generously uh, here on Capitol Hill, it, it was not envisaged as uh, the means to cover vaccine purchases. And so, uh, you know, the second $2 billion that was allocated for COVAX went toward the Pfizer purchases, and much of the ARP money that we had intended to invest in health systems now has so also... the answer is no, that's not enough. Um, I, I, there, there are lots of demands on the ARP. And, and how's this Thank procurement you. going to be distributed? Is it going to go to COVAX? We, will, he, will we, uh, through USAID, distribute doses bilaterally? If so, how are you prioritizing bilateral distribution? Um, I think it's a both-and scenario. The, the Pfizer, uh, the terms of the Pfizer deal, as you may know, are for COVAX countries, so for low-income low and lower-middle-income countries. Uh, the 80 million surplus doses that we are providing bilaterally have more flexibility. They're not subject to those terms, and so that's where you're seeing the kinds of doses we were just talking about to, to Latin America and to our partners in, in Indonesia, Vietnam, et cetera, just in, in, in the last few well, days. I, I would just close on this. Look, uh, I, I'm all for COVAX. But I think the United States should be more robustly engaged in the bilateral distribution uh, of the vaccines. China is all over the Western Hemisphere and other places in the world. So I go to the Dominican Republic, speak to the president, he tells me, I really want to work with the Americans, but China's here offering it to me. Uh, I can't get it from the United States. Uh, 
this is a country in a time in which the Western Hemisphere is moving all in the wrong direction in terms of democracy and human rights, that both observes that, that is in the midst of doing things. They have uh, uh, about 60% of their hospital beds are being used by Haitians, and he's taking care of them. Uh, he has 150,000 Venezuelans that have fleed to the country. He's given them working papers. It's those type of actions that we want to support. But when he is faced uh, in terms of life and death decisions between let's choose the Chinese vaccine or let me at least buy American vaccines and I can't get them, then there's another dimension in addition to doing the right thing on vaccination that has a force multiplier in terms of our diplomacy and our interests. And I just hope that the administration will look at that. Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let, let me uh, start there. I, I, I was just astounded the other day when COVAX said they were going to buy the Chinese vaccine. I assume you saw that uh, that release. Have you discussed that with the other people at COVAX? Um, yes, yes, Senator. This this uh, do they do they appreciate the irony of this? Where uh, you know China started this and refused to participate in COVAX and won't give won't contribute money, won't contribute vaccines. Uh, but then COVAX is turning around and actually paying them uh, for their vaccines. I, I mean, this is this is odd, it's strange to say the least. If I may just say, make, make a couple points here. Uh, first of all, it is appalling that Beijing chose to make a profit on those vaccines rather than to contribute financially to COVAX or to donate uh, its state-owned doses uh, to COVAX to reach people in their hour of desperate need. There, there's no other way around it. It's appalling. From the standpoint of COVAX and, and why uh, that transaction went forward, um, it is the case, as you know, uh, Senator, that the supply for this third quarter of this year um, is uh, not available fundamentally. And the Delta variant is raging because, as I indicated earlier, India pulled back the Serum Institute of India doses that COVAX had expected to provide, for example, second shots and to reach health workers. Uh, hundreds of millions of doses that COVAX had expected to be able to distribute never arrived. The US, you know, as you know, with, through Pfizer, is, is moving to address the supply issue, but that won't really kick in uh, until August and then into, into the later part of this year, and even that will only scratch the surface in terms of the global need. So I think what you're looking at is a raging pandemic, a supply challenge um, that the US and Europe will be addressing, and, and you'll see other pharmaceutical companies also have their drugs probably licensed toward the end of this year. But in that hour of relative desperation, it, it felt it needed to bring vaccines online as quickly as possible, particularly, again, to get those second shots uh, and those health healthcare workers reached. That's no excuse for what China did uh, in that context. I appreciate that. Um, are, are what, from your position at COVAX, what are you finding as far as the other countries' uh, acceptance of the Chinese vaccine? I mean... It, you know, here in the U.S., we see even uh, even slight uh, ineffectiveness uh, is greeted with uh, real disdain. And as we read what's going on with the Chinese vaccine, it seems to be pretty low quality compared to what uh, what, what we're producing. 
What's happening there? What, what are the countries saying about getting the Chinese vaccine? Well, as you know, um, you know, different studies have, have uh, yielded different, different research findings as it relates to a number of the vaccines on the global market, including uh, the two Chinese vaccines in question. Uh, it was licensed you know, to, to be used. And again, because it's not a question of choosing, COVAX choosing between Sinovax or Sinopharm and Moderna, I think it's obvious what the choice would be if that were the choice. It's choosing uh, one of these Chinese vaccines or, or not having supply uh, uh, in, the, in this period. And so I think, and just to come back to the chairman's point, you know, across our hemisphere and around the world, people's very strong preference appears to be for uh, U.S. manufactured max vaccines, uh, particularly mRNA vaccines like Moderna and Pfizer. Um, and so once that supply becomes available, I think uh, it's, it's going to be a very clear choice. Uh, I mean, the, the, the let, let, let me leave it at that. Oh, actually, let me just say one more thing, if I could, sorry, uh, which is to the branding point about COVAX, because I think this is implicit in what you're saying, and, and the chairman raised it. Um, you know, when COVAX doses uh, are donated by, because of the generosity of the American taxpayer and because of the generosity uh, of the U.S. government, uh, those are branded with the American flag. Those are not branded just simply as COVAX, as an international organization. Our ambassadors are there to meet the, the planes when they land. We are very aware of what China is using its vaccines and people's desperation uh, to extract. Uh, and we are also intent on, we don't ask for anything in return, unlike our Chinese counterparts, uh, but we are intent certainly on, on making it known when it is our vaccines that are arriving uh, of the higher quality that we know them to be. Well, thank you, Ms. Power. My time is up. I, I'm not going to ask another question, but I just wanted one area I wanted to go into, and I will just underscore for you that uh, payments, uh, assistance to the Palestinians are, are going to be very closely scrutinized by some of us here. Uh, we're, uh, I, I know there's people in the House of Representatives that has a different view of this than we do, but as long as they have the pay-for-slave program, uh, we're going to look at every penny that's uh, spent with the Palestinians. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Power, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I, last week I was in Bulgaria, and uh, as you are aware, the Biden administration recently imposed Magnitsky sanctions in Bulgaria against uh, former corrupt officials. I thought I would be um, uh, attacked on the use of those sanctions when I visited. Instead, we were heroes. The Bulgarian government and people look at this as an opportunity to really deal with a systemic corruption problem that they have. Uh, you um, indicate in your statement that corruption is the Achilles heel of many liberal regimes. And I agree completely with you on those statements. Our committee has passed legislation that would build up the strength of our missions in understanding the circumstances in the countries in which they represent the United States uh, with tools to help deal with the corruption in these countries. So my question to you is, you talk about rapid response in your statement. And when there's an opportunity, we have to be able to move quickly. Can you just share with me your strategies on how you are going to use the tools that you have at your disposal to deal with 
the widespread corruptions that we are finding in so many countries that is really fueling autocratic regimes and uh, attacks against our own country. Um, thank you, Senator. Well, as you know, in, in President Biden, you have found uh, a, a true partner in combating crime and corruption uh, insofar as he's the first American president to have issued uh, a presidential memorandum declaring uh, the fight against corruption uh, in our national security interests. I, uh, just this month, have created at USAID the first ever anti-corruption task force and it will entail, I want to answer your question, uh, a combination, uh, and, and it's reflected in the 2022 uh, budget request as well, but a, a combination uh, of providing support, for example, to civil society and independent media actors who are exposing um, corruption and malfeasance, but it's also going to entail mainstreaming the anti-corruption fight across USAID programming areas. And I don't mean simply for the purpose that we would all share, which is to avoid fraud, waste, and abuse. Absolutely, uh, we are already uh, all over that. But actually just looking at you know where corrupt actors uh, can be found and where our leverage can be used in other sectors um, to shine a light on what is the Achilles heel, I think, to these illiberal forces. And so some of this is about using our platform and our voice and our spotlight, and some of it is about working with the Treasury Department and the Justice Department on some of the um, uh, accountability tools that, that you've been so critical in, in putting in place. Uh, but I really think that we have lined up the moons here uh, and all of the elements to have the most aggressive anti-corruption plank to our foreign policy um, in American history. Let, let me make a suggestion. Uh, we use the two branches of government, I think, effectively to deal with the global pro uh, challenge of trafficking in persons. With the legislation that was passed by Congress, with the focus in the State Department in regards to trafficking and the accountability issues, I think we've made tremendous progress globally on that issue. We can do the same with corruption. The legislation that we are passing here will give you additional tools and uh, expectations in our, uh, our relations with other countries, uh, and it strengthens America's position when we work together. I just urge you to, to work with us on that legislation. Let's get it to the finish line, uh, and that will give you some additional ability to work in country to get changes. I want to touch on uh, on the other issue that you mentioned uh, in that statement in the same area, and that is that the cause of democracy is currently on its back heels in many parts of the world. Then you cite the Freedom House study that shows a decline of democratic states. When you look at the percentage of resources that are devoted to democracy uh, building, it's not a large sum of, the, of your budget. Uh, I noticed that you've requested additional funds, and we appreciate that. But it seems to me you have limited funds to deal with a huge problem, and I would just welcome your thoughts as to how we can effectively promote uh, democratic institutions. I think there's a broader and deeper question even at the heart of your inquiry, Senator, which is, you know, just in general, are we looking with fresh eyes at the standoff between democracy, democracies and authoritarian forces or autocratic forces around the world? Um, and, you know, I think each administration, you know, looks at the democracy funding and programming of the administration before it and looks to see should it be adjusted in this way or that way. I really hope that the President's Democracy Summit, which I know many of you are providing input on, um, provides an occasion to, to give the kind of fresh look uh, 
at the resources required to meet this moment with China trying to pull countries into the autocratic and authoritarian column every single day using the tools of suppression and technological surveillance uh, to do so. And then when a country has turned more autocratic, then calling on that country to vote with China in the UN to undermine human rights and, and, and democratic norms. Um, you know, I, I, I think there, there really is a question about whether we are resourced and, and thinking sufficiently ambitiously, because we know they are. Um, and so I, I, I welcome going deeper on that conversation. We have requested a modest increase. We are doing a soup to nuts look at our programming, in, including in consultation with, with many of you. Um, but, but ideas welcome, um, because this is not an afterthought uh, for Beijing. This is the point. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Rader Powers, welcome. Uh, I, I want to concentrate a little bit on Central America. I know you <clears throat> recently made a trip to the Northern Triangle countries. Um, we have a crisis on our border. Uh, I know the administration, many members are in a state of denial, but uh, we've been apprehending about 6,000 people per day over the last three months. Uh, the human depredation, the human traffickers, the, the uh, open lanes for additional human trafficking and drug smuggling. Uh, it's a crisis on our, on our border. I know the, the Vice President went down to Central America looking for root causes. Uh, I just want to ask you, did you discover or did you c come to any conclusions in terms of what the root cause of that uh, out-migration is? Well, it's, I know you know, because I know how carefully uh, you're, you're tracking this, but uh, a complicated stew of forces. I mean, some communities you meet with people where gang violence would literally, there'd be bodies on the streets because of gang violence, where our programs attempt to reduce the number of homicides, knowing that that would be a reason, uh, uh, I can't even imagine being a mother and handing one's child over to a coyote, but it's a level of desperation sometimes around physical security can, can, can that I, is can, acute. Can I, and the economic, of course, is the, is the main, especially let, in the wake of COVID. Let, let me just quick interject. I want to let you an, finish answering the question. When you mentioned gangs, one fact that's really not very widely known of the unaccompanied children that are coming into this country being apprehended, 70% are male, 70% are 15, 16, or 17. That would be the prime age for recruitment into gangs, things like MS-13. So, but anyway, that's not a, a, a fact that we're focusing on very much when we, we're talking about the crisis, but go, go on. You're talking about the gangs in Central America. Well, well I've just... Uh Offering that as, as you know, one source, I actually keep a uh, handy chart, and I'm sure you've seen some like it, but just we actually have, you know, crunched the data. You don't need to see the specifics, but just um, in looking at any country of the three, looking at, you know, in which areas is it by virtue of, is it some hurricane, you know, aftershock, by in, in which countries, when we look at intention to migration surveys, is it unemployment or economic perceived economic despair? In what cases, again, is it a spike in homicides? So it's very important that we tailor our programming per community in accordance with what those actual causes are, which, which also uh, fluctuate, of course, with time. Again, we're, we're, I was asking kind of root cause. I've got my own uh, ideas on this. Let me just kind of, kind of throw something at you. Um, when I went down there in 2015, I was, I was surprised at the reaction we got from the presence of both Honduras and Guatemala when they said, we're dealing with corruption and impunity. And corruption, I understand. I think we all understand. We were talking about that earlier. Impunity, I was kind of What do you mean by that? Well, impunity springs from the fact that you have the drug cartels that are untouchable. 
I mean, literally untouchable. Uh, that then spreads over the rest of society where you end up with the gang activity and you end up with the, the extortionists, you know, shooting a cab driver, burning his cab if, if uh, they don't hand over the, the ransom. Um, the drug cartels exist in Central America because we shut down to a great extent the drug trafficking through the Caribbean and redirected it through Central America. The drug cartels ex exist because of America's insatiable demand for drugs. So if you're looking for a root cause of all the problems in Central America, almost all of them, it's America's insatiable demand for drugs. So if, if we're not willing to recognize that fact, we're not addressing the root cause. And, and we don't, quite honestly, we don't have it. We don't stand any chance whatsoever wiping out those drug cartels. They are just endemic. The, the communities rely on the profits of the drug cartels. So we have to keep that in mind. So when you're proposing $860 million for Central America, where's that going to go? How, how, is, how is that not just go down a hole and completely wasted if we're not willing to recognize what the root, true root cause is? And my final point is, when I was down there, the presence of both Honduras and Guatemala begged our delegation, please fix your laws. This is not helpful to us to lose our future. I saw a recent interview with the new president of El Salvador making the same point. This is not a successful economic model for Central America to lose all of our people. So I guess I, I would just encourage this administration and you, as you're looking at how you design these programs, please recognize the true root cause, which is America's insatiable demand for drugs. Recognize that our open border, our pull factors, is not helpful. It's destructive to Central America. If we really want to help them out, we need to secure our border. We need to stop that flow of their citizens. Thank you. Uh, Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Chairman uh, Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and um, in particular, Administrator Power. Uh, thank you for your testimony and for your continued service to our nation. Uh, I am pleased to see the Biden administration's budget request for USAID includes investments to address the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic and to bolster our ongoing role in global health, foreign assistance in the Indo-Pacific, uh, specifically to counter China's influence there and in other regions in the world, and demonstrates our commitment to fighting climate change. And I look forward to working with you to improve the effectiveness of USAID, like Senator Johnson, as he was just describing. I, too, have just returned from Guatemala. Um, have a number of questions about how we are going to effectively deliver assistance in a way that will bend the curve of a number of challenging developments there. Um, I visited a shelter for trafficked youth, as did you in your recent trip. And one of the inspiring aspects of that visit was that it was a locally uh, developed and run program. Um, our assistance to that particular initiative um, did not require uh, funding to go through uh, a governmental agency. It goes directly to an NGO. So, Administrator, I'd be interested in hearing um, what you think is a possible strategy for increasing the localization of our assistance programs, uh, devoting a larger share of development assistance funds to supporting initiatives implemented by local partners, uh, and what role additional staff would have in making that possible. Um, and I might, and perhaps this is motivated by that trip, uh, recommend uh, piloting that in a region, for example, Central America, uh, where we lack uh, credible national government partners in development. Yes, I mean, this is uh, your last point 
about lacking credible government partners is an important compliment, I think, to, to the exchange I just had with Senator Johnson. Just, uh, I mentioned violence and economic despair, but the, the governance and, and, and corruption trends uh, are really going in, in, in the wrong direction, requiring us to think very creatively about how we steward these resources uh, that uh, we hope, again, that you'll be generous enough uh, and, the, and the American people will be generous enough to provide in order to deal with uh, those causes uh, of despair and migration uh, that can be tackled within the, within the region. Um, so the, the question you pose on um, how to strengthen our relationship with local partners can sound a little bit abstract, a little bit wonky, a little bit sort of inside foreign assistance, like a perfect Samantha Power Chris Coons <laughs> exchange. Uh, but it's so important because, as I tried to say briefly in my opening statement, it is the essence of whether the development we do is going to be sustained over time. And because we, USAID, uh, want, and, and you all as well, and, and, and the president want to move quickly, uh, often there's just a lot of gravity pulling us toward very large, often US-based um, uh, contracting partners that may deign to uh, enlist local partners as part of the overall uh, contract or, or, or grant. Um, but fundamentally, the investments are not made in that internal capacity and that ability uh, to have the accounting capacity, the ability to comply with USAID's regulations, which many of which are in place in order to be responsive uh, to the need for oversight uh, that, that you have. So the, the shorter answer is, I think we're off to a good start with the New Partnerships Initiative and the Local Works Initiative, which both, uh, again, I, I think came out of a partnership between USAID um, and Congress. I think that we need to uh, try to lower the barriers of entry because it is so onerous uh, to work with USAID for these small local organizations. And we need uh, to invest in the internal capacity those organizations have to meet the legitimate oversight questions and challenges uh, that we absolutely have to, to retain in order to do our jobs as, as stewards. Well, I look forward to working with you um, on tackling USAID's procurement process. The challenges both in terms of regulations and staffing um, that you face in terms of trying to be flexible so that you can better respond to changing circumstances such as we're seeing in Ethiopia or Afghanistan or Haiti where developments, um, uh, challenging changes in circumstances require more than just disaster aid but require us to change uh, prioritization or strategies around development. If I might, just a quick last question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the Development Finance Corporation is a new tool that through its uh, loan programs can reduce the cost of financing development by leveraging private sector resources. And um, the Senate just passed an important bipartisan bill that supports the expansion of the DFC's lending authority to enable our competition with China, something Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, really uh, championed through this committee. Um, I'd be interested in your views on how um, you ensure that the DFC remains focused on development um, and what your role will be in strengthening the DFC as we expand its capacity um, to compete on behalf of the United States in partnership with the private sector against the increasing influence that China is having around the world. I, I know I probably don't have uh, time really to respond uh, in, in detail, but just to say that 
you know, as a kind of Rip Van Winkle here who was gone for four years and now is back in government, I do think the enhanced capacity you all have given the DFC is, you know, from my standpoint, you know, the newest, freshest tool in the toolbox. Uh, your continued message that this is a development finance institution is really important. I didn't have a chance, Mr. Chairman, when you were asking about the sort of full uh, set of tools in the toolbox on COVID, uh, developing vaccine manufacturing capacity in Africa, where they're importing 99% of vaccines. DFC has just announced uh, a big deal with J&J &J in South Africa with other uh, international um, financing bodies. So again, multilateralizing what we do. Uh, and that's going to bring more than 500 million doses online fr coming from South Africa by the end of 2022. I think that's just the beginning. Uh, and certainly my impression, and, and as the vice chair of the DFC, uh, um, my impression is that that is very much the orientation of the leadership of DFC uh, to, to meet these needs in developing countries, recognizing that that is going to be profitable uh, for everybody over time. Thank you. Senator Paul. Good morning. Um, are you aware of how much revenue the federal government brings in? Um, pro probably order of magnitude, but not the specific. It's about 3.8 trillion estimated for this year. Last year, about 3.7 trillion. Uh, but we're spending, you know, close to seven trillion maybe this year, a little over six trillion last year. So the deficit was of historic proportions last year, over three trillion. It'll be again three trillion or more by the time. Uh, the majority party weighs in. Uh, amidst that massive deficit, do you, do you think that debts matter? Do you think it, it matters how big a deficit we have? Um, if I can state to my, my area of expertise, uh, which, is, which is how we spend the money that you're generous enough to appropriate, I'm, I'm probably on safer and safer ground. I have my views as a citizen, but I'm here in my capacity as aid administrator. All right. You know, the thing is, is that we probably do need people in government who do understand a little bit about finances. I mean, you're asking for a 15% increase in the welfare that we give to other countries. And um, really, I think it's irresponsible. It's the wrong thing we should be doing. We should be uh, conserving our resources, particularly conserving them uh, for our country as opposed to sending them to other countries. There's not a great deal of evidence that the money that we, uh, you know, launder throughout the world really over time has been a benefit to us. There's a great deal of evidence that much of it's been stolen. We mentioned corruption. Well, yeah, there's plenty of corruption and often the government to government money has been stolen through the years. But some of it's spent on things that are just, you know, if the American people knew about them would be outraged. Some of the uh, aid money went to, um, you know, spreading uh, green growth in Peru, some sort of climate alarmism, uh, selling Serbian cheese, venture capital fund in Bosnia, uh, small business loans to people who have been deported, uh, dealing with truant uh, Filipino youths. In Afghanistan, we spent $60 million on a hotel that was never completed. It was a shell of a hotel across from our embassy. It became such a danger that our troops had to patrol it and ultimately will have to be raised. If it hasn't been so already, they'll probably need more money to raise it after we gave somebody $60 million. The contractor ran off with the money. Uh, the people who want uh, global climate alarmism to spread through both aid and our defense budget built a $45 million natural gas gas station in Afghanistan. 
first problem was it was supposed to cost 800,000 and then in the ever uh, lack of efficiency of government, it ended up costing 45 million when initial estimates were 800,000. Um, that was the first problem. The second problem is the average Afghani makes about $800 a year, doesn't have a regular car, much less a car that runs on natural gas. So the thing is, is that there's a, if you look at the history of uh, the welfare that we distribute around the world, you really see a history of uh, both sending it to corrupt nations. Uh, if you look at the money sent to the Mubarak family, to Egypt, you know, little, uh, I think it's a trillion and a half, uh, uh, no, billion and a half a year, but over like a 30-year period, I think it was 40-some-odd billion. Well, Mubarak's kids were each worth about five billion. Mubarak himself became worth about 10 billion. And I don't think anybody argues that some of that wasn't getting by uh, taking the cream off the top as our aid came in. But that's the history of it throughout Africa, throughout all of these nations of people skimming off the top. But uh, it's insulting to Americans. We're running a $3 trillion debt, and it does have ramifications. You know, what we're seeing is uh, inflation throughout the economy right now. It's an insidious tax. It hurts the poor the worst. It's a regressive tax. And we're going to see more of it. But it comes from people who don't seem to have an opinion about debt, who just seem to just go along their way and say, oh, I'm going to help people. I call it the big heart, small brain syndrome. Give everybody money. Give everybody free money. Give the world free money. Because we have a big heart and we want to help people. But we don't see really the ramifications of what the debt's doing to our country, what it'll ultimately do. Um, if you want to see the unraveling of it, look at Venezuela. You know, that's what, that's, that's what our future will look like if we consider to not be concerned about debt. So my uh, admonition to you is you should care about the debt and that you should be aware of the debt in coming forward with a budget that asks us to increase by 15% when we'll have a deficit of over $3 trillion this year. Um, thank you, Senator. I don't have much time uh, to, to respond, but I, I'd be grateful just to say a couple of things. First of all, um, I've made multiple endeavors to come and see you. I would love to talk about the programs that, that you have concerns about. I actually think... Uh, when I had the privilege of serving the Obama administration, there were a number of issues related to assistance to particular governments where, where you and I uh, had a, a meeting of the minds, if, if I recall, unless I'm misremembering. Um, but uh, on the broader um, sort of view of foreign aid, I just think it's really important to disaggregate what we're talking about and to dig into particular programs. And that's why one of my priorities as administrator is to enhance the rigor uh, of our evaluations, uh, to be accountable, um, to look at some of the programs maybe on your list, maybe maybe they should, should be stopped or maybe they should never have started and maybe we can learn from them. But if the pandemic has not <laughs> taught us how connected the health and safety of Americans is to people who live around the world, I do know, not know what will. We are connected. And if we do not invest in global health systems internationally, it is going to be the American Nobody's people arguing that we're pay not the price. connected. It's just whether we have to pay for everything. Would you? And so, so you want the Chinese then to pay and to to exact their leverage in that manner? You want someone to do it, but we're to be the freeloader on the, on a Chinese-led world order? I'm not for that. Thank you very much, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, great to see you, Ambassador. Thanks uh, for your continued service to the country. We wanted to try to uh, hit um, a couple uh, hotspots in the Middle East in the time that I have. Um, first, I want to talk about Lebanon, a country that um, right now doesn't occupy uh, a lot of oxygen uh, in this town, but were it to disintegrate, 
um, would be our and the world's obsession for the next decade. Um, right now, uh, the economy is in free fall. The currency is virtually worthless. Uh, the country's economy is built on a pyramid scheme that enriches a set of elites, which uh, have sort of forced um, a, a, a sort of a frozen status quo uh, for years. Question is, um, what is the best way for the United States to use its aid to try to promote the type of reform that will uh, help this country uh, sort of get back on a path to sustainability? Um, how can we change the current dynamic? For instance, you know, should we be considering perhaps a narrower approach? I mean, my sense is that we have tried to put broad conditions on our aid. Should we be thinking about focusing for instance, on one sector of reform, like banking reform, and uh, narrowing our ask. Uh, what we are doing today doesn't seem to be moving the needle. Um, what would you suggest should be our approach to using our aid in Lebanon uh, as leverage to try to rescue this country from a crisis today that does, frankly, within the next year, uh, threaten to propel the entire nation into chaos, um, continued economic freefall, and potentially civil war? Um, would that there were a, a silver bullet uh, for the, the gravity and, and, and breadth of the crisis unfolding there? Um, I, th I guess I'd just offer a, a, a couple associations and, and look forward to maybe talking with you more about this. But um, I mean, first of all, Lebanon is a place where we have been more successful than we have, for example, on a country like Yemen in multilateralizing our response and in getting Europeans and others uh, to step up. I think if we were to go in the direction that you describe, a sector-based approach, it would be essential uh, that other sectors not be left behind. Second point, which again is true of every country we've talked about so far today, which is governance, 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 you know, absent um, the kind of uh, political unity, uh, you know, you don't even see garbage collection occurring, uh, right? State formation, state erosion uh, ends up being critical uh, in, in terms of making the partnership work for the Lebanese people. And then the third and final point is, is there are huge demands being placed on global humanitarian emergency assistance, as you well know, um, Tigray now alongside South Sudan, alongside Yemen, Syria, Venezuela, uh, we could go on. Um, you know, if just looking back a couple of years, you would not have thought that Lebanon uh, would would potentially find itself on that list. And and so as the US aid administrator, I'm both interested very much in governance and economic development, but we are also in a situation where we're, we're, we're having to provide emergency humanitarian funding because that is uh, how weak the governance and the ability to deliver for the people has become. Um, let me turn uh, to Gaza. Um, according to the UN, the main border crossing that we use to get humanitarian goods into Gaza is operating only at about 50% capacity right now due to Israeli delays and restrictions. Um, UNRWA hasn't been allowed to get insulin and syringes in since October of last year. UNICEF has been barred from importing uh, epoxy into Gaza. Um, what are we doing right now with the Israelis to try to ease these restrictions, uh, and do you have any hope that there might be the opportunity to you know, reopen uh, another crossing? 
Um, I know this is a priority for this administration. We want to make sure that only the right things get into Gaza. Uh, at the same time, we are going to repeat history over and over and over again uh, if we don't find a way to relieve the legitimate humanitarian suffering there. Um, yeah, and, and maybe if I could, Senator Murphy, just to, to take this occasion, too, to respond to something uh, Ranking Member Risch talked about um, at the close of his of our exchange, which is, which is I think we're all on the same page in wanting to ensure uh, that our funding goes to the intended beneficiaries. And, uh, you know, given the Taylor Force Act, uh, given, of course, prohibitions on, on any funding going to Hamas, that is what USAID and our partners on the ground do. We, we, we live by uh, uh, American law uh, and, and the rules that have been put on the books, and they've been put on the books for a very good reason. Um, so I think part of, part of what we need to do is unlock some of the funding that, that um, uh, you know, is, is uh, going to be very important for the reconstruction effort and for economic development. With our Israeli uh, interlocutors, there seems broad support for that. There's a recognition that economic deprivation and despair uh, helps you know, create a receptive environment for radicalization, and that's not something it's in anybody's security or economic interest to see happen. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I hope we'll soon have an ambassador uh, in Israel. Uh, again, the, the, the nomination uh, is, is, is up here, and I hope, like others, we'll, we'll, we'll move forward um, so that we'll have the ability to, to maintain that dialogue. As it relates to Gaza, you know, it's really important to remember, in addition to all of our vetting, which is, um, you know, we have a third layer of vetting for anything that goes into Gaza for, for obvious reasons, um, but also COGAT, you know, the, the Israeli system by which uh, supplies go through uh, is there uh, as well as a check, uh, you know, on uh, what goes in. And you're right, that can produce delays, um, and, and that is something, again, in terms of people not getting the resources that they need that is not in anybody's interest, but it also should offer some assurance uh, for, for uh, those who are concerned about uh, assistance not, not reaching, again, its intended destination, uh, that, that we have systems in place, uh, again, to make sure that the humanitarian development assistance goes for its intended purpose. Thank you Thank very you. much. Uh, for the members' uh, information, there is a vote going on. It's the chair's intention to plow through for at least a half hour, and then we'll see where we're at at that point. Um, Senator Young, I understand, is with us uh, virtually. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Administrator uh, Power, welcome to the committee. We are, unfortunately, uh, and tragically, in the midst of the worst border crisis, arguably, in our nation's history. This year, tons of illicit drugs will enter the country. Uh, thousands of migrants who are fleeing violence and corruption through Central and, and, and South America uh, will um, illegally cross our, our southern border. Uh, now we're, we're staring at yet another emerging crisis in Haiti and the ongoing protests against the tyrannical uh, communist regime in Cuba. We have to do more to address and stop the root causes of these crises before they arrive at our door. At our door. I, I know this is something that has been emphasized by various members of the administration. I believe the Biden administration's rhetoric has invited much of this crisis, though. 
Uh, it's well documented that many migrants wouldn't make this dangerous journey and risk their lives if their home countries could be provided some semblance of security and governance, which leads me to USAID. I do believe that USAID AID has a, a large and important role to play in helping those nations regain their sovereignty from the narco-terrorists uh, who are at the heart of the crisis. So uh, I'm glad to see USAID has increased funding for the International Narcotics Control and Law Enforcement uh, effort, uh, even if only by small uh, uh, measures. Administrator Power, first, do you believe there is a crisis at the southern border? I think the president indicated uh, directly at one point that there was. And if so, what is USAID doing in response to the border crisis? Uh, specifically, are you working with the Northern Triangle or elsewhere in the region to stem the flow uh, of migrants? Maybe you could speak to all of that. Uh, th thank you, Senator. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the same apprehension numbers and, and border crossing numbers uh, that, that you are and certainly uh, see you know, the, the worrying flows and, and uh, as you noted, instability uh, throughout the hemisphere means that this is not only an issue also the Northern Triangle. There are root cause issues in, in a number of countries that we have to uh, think through. If I maybe just, because you raised it, if I just say a quick word on Haiti, I think it really underscores, you know, why development, economic development, security and governance are the three legs on the stool. You know, if any one leg is shorter than the others, the stool kind of topples over, uh, to use a, a probably tired metaphor. Um, and in Haiti, the political dysfunction, the absence of political unity right now, combined with the physical insecurity um, and the spikes in, in violence and homicide, combined with COVID and the, you know, uh, exacerbation of all the pre-existing economic uh, conditions, you know, again, creates um, a very, a very potent uh, and, and destabilizing mix. Um, with regard, you asked specifically about the Northern Triangle countries. I mean, one, I was down there, one of the, the, the most important purposes, I think, of any high-level trip, including by, by members of this body, is to send the message that there is no workaround for uh, democratic backsliding. There's no workaround for corruption. Uh, we can't attract the kind of uh, private investment. We, can, we might be interested in moving supply chains as we diversify our supply chains you know, to some of those countries. How do you do that, right, when the corruption trends are going in the wrong direction? I, I had the, the unfortunate task, uh, since I saw you last, Senator, of, of rerouting funding that was supposed to go to the Attorney General's office and uh, the Supreme Court's office in El Salvador, it had to be rerouted away from those offices because the individuals in those offices were fired uh, by the president and we decided it wasn't a worthy investment because it had become, these were sort of political choices and politicized bodies and so we invested instead in civil society organizations holding that, that government uh, accountable. So we do things like that. I also think lawful pathways of migration, the H-2B and H-2A programs, which are quite nascent uh, in the Northern Triangle countries, uh, stressing uh, and, and, and ensuring there are facilities where asylum claims can be processed in the region. 
Um, you know, we are working, USAID is working really closely with labor ministries to try to staff them up so they are in a position to process lawful migration claims. There are actually very few overstays on H-2B and H-2A visas in, in that program, as I understand it, but we have a lot to and learn. I, I, I'm, I'm going to interject respectfully, uh, just on account of uh, my, my time expiring, but uh, thank you for your effort to comprehensively respond uh, to <laughs> my line of inquiry. <laughs> Uh, I will say that uh, Senator Cardin and I are, are trying to provide the administration with tools to deal with the corruption side of things, to actually allow countries to be tiered based on levels of, of, of corruption, and then um, allow sanctions to be imposed upon directly upon those individuals uh, who uh, we know are responsible for uh, various levels of corruption. We think those tools will be effective for the State Department and, and um by extension, uh, assist USAID uh, and the people of those countries as well. Uh, moreover, um, uh, you know, I think uh, immigration reform and, and uh, ensuring that our nation's immigration laws are, are, are fixed can be helpful. Uh, you mentioned uh, the various H2 programs, and uh, I think we can build on the success of those programs, but of course, border security is gonna have to be part of that. That's not part of your portfolio, but uh, it bears mentioning. We'll never get major immigration reform in, until we uh, take that seriously. Uh, one, one Sen final Senator, Senator, I'm sorry, but you're a minute and 38 uh, over, so and we have a vote on the floor. I, I do understand. Uh, thank you uh, for indulging me, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I'll follow up with some written questions uh, for the administrator. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. For the attention of members, I'm now told by the floor that because President Biden is coming to the Capitol, uh, the time frame on the clock will not be as extended as normal. So I'm going to recognize Senator Kane. That will get us to when they say they're going to close the floor. And then uh, if I can have somebody come back, we'll continue. The next person on the, uh, the next side is Senator Romney. Can't make it back. Well, let me see if I can stay and see if they don't close the vote. So have you voted already? Okay. Senator Kane. If, if you want to hold in. I'll Thank you, Mr. It. Chair. Um, just three observations. I just returned from the Americas with a group of six senators, bipartisan from this committee, Senators uh, Portman, Coons, Senators Lujan, Hoven, and Crapo, uh, Mexico, Guatemala, Ecuador, Colombia. And just three observations, concluding with a compliment to USAID. Number one, I agree with Senator Johnson. We really have to grapple with root causes and the root causes are violence and lack of economic opportunity and weak institutions and corruption, but they're very connected to the U.S. demand for drugs. Just today, the, result, uh, the CDC put out statistics, overdose deaths went up by 25% last year, highest overdose death total in the history of the United States. And we heard this over and over again, and we know it in our communities. The, the insatiable demand of U.S. citizens for drugs and their willingness to send cash south creates narco-trafficking uh, as a powerful and wealthy industry. Uh, and that industry creates violence in the neighborhoods of Honduras and other nations, and people flee violence. And it weakens institutions and creates corruptions, and that causes people to leave. And it puts a limit on economic investment, and that causes people to leave. So we, we have to grapple with this in a multidimensional way, but there's no way to deal with this without dealing with our own demand, because if we don't do that, we'll be back talking to the 10th president in the future from all these countries, and we'll have exactly the same problem. 
It doesn't mean the solutions are easy. My hope, if we recognize this, is that we might talk about these immigrants in a different way than we often do, because their pain is our pain. Many of them wouldn't be here if it weren't for our pain. So we see them showing up at the border like, how dare you? Well, they're coming because of us. They're coming because we've ravaged their neighborhoods. All eight of my great-grandparents came to the United States from Ireland, just as you did, Administrator Power. But, but my great-grandparents didn't come because U.S. drug demand was destroying their community. The people that I worked with in Honduras, you know, 40 years ago, and the folks who are just like them today, they are deeply, deeply affected by what's going on in the domestic reality of our nation's life. And they're seeking a refuge from conditions that we are complicit in creating. Again, that doesn't make the solutions easy, but as we talk about people who are arriving under these conditions, I hope that our rhetoric might be more compassionate about them. Second, it would have been easy to rationally understand this, but not until I went to the Americas that I realized how powerful the U.S. vaccine diplomacy has been. Again and again, the shortest meeting we had, we met with all four presidents of these countries, and the shortest meeting was two hours. And we usually don't get meetings with heads of state, but I attribute it to they hadn't seen Codell's in a while. But I really attribute it to their gratitude around the vaccine deliveries. And they talked about the vaccine issue out there and that China and Russia will sell them vaccines and will we'll make a contract and maybe deliver or not, or, not. or maybe delay delivery. U.S. is giving them vaccines. And I hope, and I'm going to submit this for the record, Administrator Power, because this is an answer for you and others. I'd like to see a chart about vaccine donations in the world and what the U.S. is doing and what other nations are doing. And we're doing it bilaterally, but we're also doing it through being the largest contributor to COVAX. I'd like that all on the chart because the appreciation for what we are doing and the belief that the U.S. vaccines are the gold standard while there's questions about the quality of the other vaccines, that gives us an enormous opportunity to continue to build goodwill, and I hope that we will. And finally, uh, a thank you to USAID. We went to two locations, um, the uh, Albergue de Arguella in Quito, Ecuador, run by Jesuit Relief Services, but funded partially by USAID, and the Raices de Amor in Guatemala City, run by a local nonprofit, funded by US, partially funded by USAID. And we really just saw the tremendous need and the creative work that we're doing. The, the Quito facility was a facility for immigrant families coming across the border from Venezuela, some from Colombia. And you know, one described showing up with a family and just knocking at the door. And it just reminded me of the old story of, you know, a pregnant mom and a husband showing up, and is there room at the end? No, there's no room at the end. Well, this was a place in a really poor neighborhood in Quito where, yeah, there was room. You knock at the door, there's going to be a place for you. And this is funded by USAID, and it was a real manifestation of the continuing crisis in Venezuela and to some degree in some parts of Colombia as well. The second site was the Raices de Amor in Guatemala City, which is for human trafficking victims, uh, mostly girls under the age of 20, as young as 13 or 14, um, who have, you know, I, I was going to say lost everything, but many didn't have much to lose, who don't have anything, but find in this small community in the heart of Guatemala City, Guatemala City some adults who will care about them and hopefully, you know, help them get on a better life path. Um, this is enormously important work. 
uh, in a region that really, really needs us. And so you have a wonderful responsibility, a grave responsibility on your shoulders. Look forward to working together with you. And I will submit for the record this question to try to get a chart that all the committee can see to, to demonstrate the tremendous generosity of the American people around the vaccines and, uh, and hope that we can continue that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Romney is recognized. I'd like to ask Senator Shaheen since she's voted to preside until I get back. Thank you very much. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, don't let them close the vote till I get there. I'll be very brief. I, and, I, and I'm not going to ask uh, Ambassador and Administrator a series of questions because of the time, but I, but I would note a couple, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I appreciate very deeply the work that you do. Uh, I recognize, as Senator Paul did, the, the damage that debt does to our nation. I'm concerned about a 15% increase in your budget and think that's, that's a mistake for us to be adding uh, budgets at this time. At the same time, I believe that your organization has a humanitarian purpose, but also a national purpose. And uh, American national interest is being fostered by USAID, or we wouldn't be devoting the level of resources we are to the effort. I would be interested in your perspective on our national interest in the way we apply our resources and perhaps a report of how successful we are in pursuing our national interest in providing that humanitarian relief. That would be a, a topic, number one. Number two, I, I, uh, I also concur with the comments that were made by Senator Kane and Senator Johnson about focusing on root causes, but with regards to root causes coming from the Northern Triangle, I believe we met the enemy and the enemy is us, as Pogo once famously said. Uh, the problem is here. Our ability to change gang violence, uh, corruption, and so forth in other countries is obviously very modest. Uh, if we're going to try and change things, it has to be changed here. And finally, let me just note this. I'm very concerned about the USAID employees in Afghanistan and, and the risk they may be under and would like to hear uh, in, in a report uh, to this committee the level of threat to our uh, Afghan citizens who worked with USAID and whether we're getting them out, can get them out, and whether they are uh, able to qualify for the special immigrant visa. With that, I'm going to leave and go vote. So I'll, please go ahead and respond. Uh, you've got three minutes, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll be back, and we'll hear your, your comment. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, we, we, I mean, your first question is profound, and even if you've given me lots of time, uh, I don't think three minutes would do justice to why it's in our national interest to support this, this kind of work. Um, I offered one response in my exchange with Senator Paul around the pandemic and pandemic preparedness, uh, where our national security, our, our individual security, our collective security is so linearly tied with other countries' ability to get viruses under control because it is the paradigmatic example of a threat that crosses borders and doesn't respect uh, border controls or, or passports, uh, problems without passports, as they call them. Uh, it is in our collective interest to see countries curb their emissions, given the uh, uh, harrowing rate of warming and the extreme weather events that are going along with that warming, weather events that, again, are problems without passports that don't respect national borders and that are uh, wreaking great, great havoc, havoc um, on American farmers, uh, with American wildfires, with flooding, with 118 degree heat in Portland, Oregon, uh, uh, you name it, which itself has you know, uh, 
really uh, pernicious health effects uh, all around the world, but also uh, here in this country. So those are, those are just a couple examples, but also Americans have so much to be proud of. Uh, we have so much to be proud of in having gone into West Africa in, in 2014 and mobilized a global response to an Ebola epidemic that otherwise would have become a pandemic and mobilizing other countries to carry their fair share. Same in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, in, in dealing with the recent uh, Ebola crisis there. If the United States hadn't done that, Lord knows uh, where Ebola would now be within Congo and, and, and well beyond. PEPFAR, uh, George, uh, George W. Bush's tremendous uh, creation, uh, 17 million people alive today, lives saved uh, because of the generosity of the taxpayer, but also giving the world an ability to get HIV AIDS uh, under control, uh, relatively speaking. We still have objectives that haven't been met in that regard. But again, both in our interest in terms of the health and welfare of the American people and so consistent with our values and, and what Senator Kane was talking about in terms of uh, people's gratitude um, and, uh, and sense of partnership uh, with the United States. Because unlike our competitors, we are not uh, extractive in the way that we provide development assistance. We are not transactional. We are not asking uh, for something in return. We are not asking to make a buck on COVID vaccines when people are in their hour of greatest need. And, and that is the spirit in which uh, development assistance is provided, that spirit of partnership. And as it happens, it then translates into more influence in the world and an ability to advance our interests in other ways, an ability to mobilize coalitions around things that are more narrowly in our short-term self-interest. Um, I, I would. I know I'm out of time. I'd love to to respond uh, on as it relates to USAID personnel and our implementing partners uh, on Afghanistan. But I have a sneaking suspicion that Senator Shaheen might have a question uh, in that regard as well. So perhaps I can I can wait and say something on that uh, in a little bit. Well, thank you, Ambassador. It's too bad that Senator Romney wasn't here to hear your answer. I'm sure he would have appreciated it, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen, and uh, welcome again, Madam Administrator. And let me start with the question on Power Africa. You were part of the administration that helped launch Power Africa, a very successful program in my view, but one that uh, could be expanded and has uh, even greater potential. Uh, Power Africa delivered first-time electricity to more than 103 million people and helped connect more than 22 million homes and businesses to electricity. Uh, and I know this occurred before you were uh, confirmed, but uh, the administration's budget actually cuts the budget for Power Africa uh, compared to last year's level by about, oh, about 26%. Uh, so if you could talk a little bit about whether or not um, you agree that Power Africa is an important program and whether you want to we'll, we'll work with this committee to restore uh, at least level funding for this program. Um. Thank you. Well, let, let me just say that our ambition uh, is to take this flagship program and to expand it by bringing in new private sector partners in other countries as well. There's a lot of interest in, in Power Africa uh, in Europe and, and Asia and beyond. Uh, I think the target now is to connect 60 million homes um, uh, and businesses to electricity by 2030, so to expand on the numbers that you've, uh, that you've shared. And again, it's, it's it's how American development assistance should work. We invest, we leverage $650 million and turned it into $56 billion in commitments. 
Um, I will share just briefly that um, I spoke with the Sudanese Prime Minister Hamduk uh, last week. And of course, just as the chairman was saying earlier, it is so in our interest as the United States to support those bright spots that exist globally, Sudan, Dominican Republic, uh, he was mentioning. Unfortunately, there aren't, there aren't that many in terms of governance and, and the trend lines in governance, but the very first thing he wanted to talk about was Power Africa. And, and um, so suffice it to say, I think it's an incredibly important program. You know, Senator Romney was taking issue with the, uh, with the modest increase in, in the president's budget request. I mean, just given that there are more conflicts happening anywhere in the world right now than any time since the end of the Cold War, given the COVID fallout and the rises in extreme poverty of a kind we haven't seen in generations, the fact that routine immunizations aren't occurring, kids are out of school, I mean, 15% compared to the state of the world today versus two years ago. I, I, it's, I, it's, I agree with you, Madam Mr. I, we, we definitely um, need to have the resources to match our um, ambitions when it comes to our global strategy and uh, priorities. And that's why I hope we'll also work to increase the amount for Power Africa. That, but, but, and, and I, I didn't mean to go back yeah. to that, but it's yeah. simply to say that that's why I think that it's those other demands yeah. on our funding is the only reason I understand. Uh, that you I see, understand. see that reduction. If um, I'd like to turn to a question that was uh, raised by Senator Murphy, and I think all of us um, you know, support uh, continued resources uh, for the Iron Dome defense system and Israel's security assistance. Uh, I'm also pleased that the Biden administration has resumed funding to support humanitarian projects um, in the Palestinian um, areas. Uh, as you know, uh, the administration uh, proposed, I believe, $75 million in ESF funds uh, to uh, the Congress. Um, my understanding is that Request is currently being held here uh, by the ranking member. I look forward to a conversation with the, the ranking member um, and his team about that. Um, have, have you had conversations with the ranking member and his team to try to resolve uh, that issue? We, we, we have tried uh, to ensure that we can move the money uh, that, that uh, we think is so critical to meet uh, basic needs in terms of food vouchers, livelihoods, youth engagement. I mean, again, we're the potential for radicalization is there and the East Jerusalem Hospital Network. Yeah. We're very eager. We, we feel that we have the vetting mechanisms in place to offer the assurances. Is, uh, isn't it the need. case that this is some of the, or if not the most vetted money that it is the, the ID most vetted money. plays? Thank you. <laughs> it is Period. The most, right? It is most vetted money. It because is the most vetted We all want to make sure we comply with the limitations that have been rightly established uh, in the law. Uh, but we also, I would hope, want to provide uh, important assistance um, as part of engaging with the Palestinian people um, and hopefully at one point um, getting to the point where we can resume um, the negotiations uh, between Israel and the Palestinians for two two-state solution. Um, isn't it the case that this is 2020 money, and if it's not dispersed by the September 30th, you no longer can spend these monies? I believe that is the case. Right. So I, I hope the administration will continue to push hard. I will work with you to push hard. I, I just think it would be um, irresponsible to allow those funds to lapse. Um, and I hope the administration will use all its authorities uh, when it comes to that request that you've made. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. And I would just note the combination of the recent conflict and then the COVID fallout and the economic uh, uh, havoc and, and um, downturn that that caused means that the needs are, are even more acute than the, the 
cycle of post-conflict uh, needs uh, in that region. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it's reckless and wrong to be holding up those funds, in my view. So, thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Madam Chair, Ambassador Power, welcome. Uh, right now, Americans in the eyes of the world are focused on the nation of Cuba, are focused on thousands of Cubans who are bravely taking the, to the street, uh, risking their lives to protest. Uh, I will say I've been disappointed by the responses from the Biden administration that have been lukewarm at best. Um, you are someone who cares about human rights. Uh, in your view, what are the protesters in Cuba seeking and what are the impediments to their getting it? Well, I mean, you only have to hear the, the cries on the street for, for freedom. You only have to hear the complaints about the inability to access basic health services at a time of a raging pandemic. Uh, you only have to see the internet shutdowns and the frustration that you can't associate, speak, do anything freely. Um, and uh, so I'm, I can't claim, you know, I'm not there. If, even if I were there, you know, I'm sure it's a heterogeneous set of motivations for different people, but people don't want to be repressed and they want to enjoy individual dignity. And the regime denies them that. So I believe the Cuban communist regime is an evil, oppressive dictatorship that regularly, as a matter of policy, commits murder, commits torture, represses the people, strips them of their basic rights. Do you agree with that characterization? I mean, I believe it is a repressive, uh, um, horrific regime that do, has not ever met the aspirations for freedom and human rights of the of the Cuban people. I, you and I might use different, but I mean, this is a government uh, that day in, day out, abuses the rights of its people. The Biden administration put out a statement describing what was happening in Cuba as the Cubans exercising their right to peacefully assemble. Do Cubans have a right to peacefully assemble under this dictatorship? Well, we, we have seen calls to combat uh, by the Cuban government that are reprehensible. Uh, we have seen, we are, I'm sure you are tracking very carefully the alleged disappearances of, of some of the protesters um, where their whereabouts to this day are, are unknown. Um, um, and no, again, as I indicated, the, there uh, is no freedom of association uh, for the Cuban people, nor has there been. We're also seeing, in addition to protesters chanting libertad, chanting freedom, in addition to chanting down with the dictatorship, uh, we're seeing them waving American flags. Uh, why is it you think that they wave American flags? Well, I mean, this is something we, we have seen around the world, and, and for all of our um, imperfections, uh, we are a country based on a, an idea, a set of ideas, uh, that people are entitled to, to human rights and equality and dignity. And um, I believe that that flag 
our flag, uh, certainly for me as an immigrant to this country, embodies those aspirations. Across the globe, we've seen this repeatedly, whether in Cuba or in Hong Kong, and, and I think there is no symbol today in the world that more powerfully embodies freedom uh, than the American flag. And, and, and sometimes uh, it, it seems that those protesters and dissidents in other countries understand that better than, than some people in our own country do. Let me shift to another area, which is Gaza. Um, recently, I traveled to Israel in the wake of the massive rocket attacks that Israel faced. And at the time, met with senior leaders in the Israeli government um, who consistently raised concerns about money in Gaza being diverted to go to Hamas and going to terrorism. In fact, we heard specifically about water pipes designed to provide clean water and sewage being turned into rockets, the same steel pipes that were meant to, to, to have clean water instead being used as weapons of war and, and rockets. Likewise, concrete meant to build homes and buildings being turned into the infrastructure for terror tunnels to attack Israeli citizens. What specific steps will you take to prevent Hamas from using the metal, the concrete, and the money that the Biden administration intends to pour into Gaza? Um, I'm out of time to do, to do your question justice, but I, I've also visited those crossings and have met with families that actually at night before going to bed can, can hear, the, have in the past at least been able to hear the sound of, of, of digging um, and the sense of anxiety and insecurity that creates um, in the wake of, of, again, one of these cycles of conflict. I, I can only imagine how chilling that is. We have, USAID has, we work really closely with COGAD. You probably met with the Israelis who are themselves right there uh, at the crossings deciding uh, what goes in, checking. We work with, if we're talking specifically about Gaza, we work with international uh, partners, trusted partners. We, I, I was indicating earlier, we have for Gaza the most uh, elaborate, set of vetting procedures that we have anywhere in the world. It's a third layer. We vet not only the prime uh, uh, contracting partner and the sub-awardee, but the sub-sub-awardee. Um, even though we don't have a big staff presence, we have third-party monitoring. Again, we're working uh, in lockstep with our Israeli partners, and the needs are acute. Um, we uh, really feel that that it is extremely important. We, we will adhere to the laws uh, that this body has passed and that are absolutely essential at the same time meeting the development and humanitarian needs uh, are in the interests of, of uh, peace and stability in the region. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Markey. Oh, no, so sorry. I'm sorry. Senator Shaheen, I, I thought that in all this time you would have gotten a shot, but I'm sorry. Senator no, Shaheen. we've had people come, so oh, that's okay. A good well, you are next on the list, so by all means, thank you for presiding. Well, thank you, and again, welcome, Ambassador, and, and thank you for the great work that you and everyone at USAID is doing um, around the world. There's been a lot of discussion in this hearing about the impacts of COVID and the additional challenges that has meant for um, countries around the world. It's also had an impact on women um, because 
we have seen the lack of access to family planning and reproductive health care for women and girls. In fact, um, because of the 10% decline in use of contraceptives, we expect that more than 48 million women will have an unmet need for modern contraception and more than 15 million additional unintended pregnancies will happen. Can you talk about how you expect to work to expand and improve USAID's family planning and reproductive health programs and what we need to do to increase access to these programs? in the middle of this pandemic? Uh, thank you, Senator. Well, I think it, we've heard the whole range of impacts uh, on women from the pandemic, um, including the surge in domestic violence uh, described as a kind of, uh, as the, the, the second pandemic or a shadow pandemic. Um, you know, I would, I would say that the combination of, um, again, making sure that USAID is pursuing not only development, not only sustainable development, but inclusive development um, and what we have seen over the life of the pandemic, and you know, we'll, we'll get the data on this in a more systematized way uh, soon, but is on all of our programs, <clears throat> whether it's, you know, yes, there've been kids dropping out of the, the school population, but a disproportionate number of girls. Uh, you know, yes, there've been drop off in health services across uh, all populations, but with the disproportionate effect that you describe, of course, on voluntary family planning. So I think the combination of our pre-existing funding with an emphasis on those dis disproportionately affected by the pandemic, plus thanks to your collective generosity through the ARP uh, funding, that has given us an opportunity to go back into our global health uh, programming and ask, okay, what is the COVID fallout component of this where we have to supplement what we had planned to do uh, to begin with? Um, now, some of that ARP money now has been uh, dedicated to vaccine purchases, which was not anticipated. Um, so the, again, the 2022 budget request is really important in this regard, but it's gonna take a long time. Uh, I mean, you could never go back in time for the people who've suffered, again, these uh, disproportionate effects in any one of these domains, but uh, to even to get back to where we were in you know January of 2020, uh, it's going to take uh, really years. Um, the other thing I'd point to, it's not exactly on point, but is the uh, Gender Equity and Equality Action Fund. It's not on point because it's not uh, family planning specific, but it's an it's an effort. Uh, in expanding, uh, you know, WGDP, which existed and was was uh, you know doing important work in the in the last administration, but expanding that effort and the resources dedicated to it uh, to deal with some of these very specific COVID effects uh, on women. And happy to talk more about that. Well, I hope we will see an ambassador for global women's issues nominated soon um, to. A help address those challenges in the State Department. I, I do want to go on to Afghanistan because, as you pointed out, I do, ex I do have an interest in what's happening there, as we all do. And there are reports out today that we have begun evacuating um, SIV applicants who have helped the United States. I don't know if that report is accurate, but obviously we have thousands of Afghans who have helped the United States over the last 20 years who are in the queue and in real danger 
if they aren't able to leave the country. Um, so I'd like for you to respond to that and what we're doing through USAID to help with that <clears throat> in terms of um, any Afghans who worked with USAID. Um, but I'd also like you to talk about what we can do to help women and girls once we are completely out of the country, which I think is probably just imminent, and what USAID can continue to do to help particularly women and girls in the country. Thank you. Well, um, in, in, in brief, our intention is to continue our programming. Um, we are every bit as aware as you uh, of the deteriorating security environment of sure. the Taliban's recent gains. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to disentangle the development questions, whether that those development questions related to women and girls or the population as a whole from the question of our security relationship, ongoing security relationship with the Afghan security forces. So I think if you saw the handover ceremony where uh, General McKenzie now is in a sense assumed command, yes, from CENTCOM, but uh, looking at the ways in which we can continue to pay Afghan security forces, vet them, maintain their ability uh, uh, or support their maintenance of their ability to, to, uh, to hold their ground. And, and again, you know, things are not, have not been going well these last weeks. It is the fighting season, um, uh, and it, but but I it just I want to start with noting the importance of security cooperation. Our partners want to stay. Uh, I think you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. You know, many of our partners were there prior to 9/11 uh, and have worked in some of these what I would consider impossible circumstances and have found a way to continue to deliver assistance. We, USAID, and, and the U.S. Embassy as a whole, through COVID, have also learned to work remotely. Uh, you know, we have not been out and about because of lockdowns nearly as much as we might have been before, and so that's given us some technical capacity. And, and so, you know, we're consolidating our hub at the embassy, true, but have an ability to, again, partner with our implementing partners. Um, so, again, it's the security situation that will... I suppose, influence the cost-benefit calculus of any particular partner as they think of, especially those outside of Kabul. Uh, but our intention is to continue to, to, to fund those efforts, uh, and it's certainly what the Afghan people uh, want more than anything. Very briefly, and it just, it's too important not to try to address, even though I know I'm over time, uh, as it, thank you for, and thank everybody up here for raising your voices on the fate of our Afghan partners that includes not only USAID staff or embassy staff or interpreters and translators who've worked with our military or the intelligence community, um, but our implementing partners, you know, those NGOs that have been out there on the front lines promoting women and girls' education. So, um, you know, if, just to take the USAID staff question as a kind of proxy for, for this larger challenge, uh, about half of our current USAID staff uh, at the embassy are eligible for SIV, um, only half, uh, because of the, the time requirement, which is, which is two right. years, so they might be just shy of that. Uh, of our 5,300 Afghan implementing partners, two-thirds are not eligible for SIV, because as you might recall, the legislation makes contractees eligible, but not those who receive USAID grants or cooperative agreements. 
Uh, as a result, we have to look at other mechanisms in those scenarios to think about how to not create inequity uh, as it relates to taking care of, of those who've, who've risked so much uh, in, in partnership with us. And what I can say, and I'm sure you've been in these conversations, is that this is a huge priority for President Biden. We do have other refugee resettlement options. Uh, there is an effort, as you as you indicated. Madam Administrator, I'm, I'm going to I'm ask sorry. you to, sorry, to augment the record. Uh, I, I love sure. your very complete answers. <laughs> Always. But we have another vote coming up, and we still have some colleagues who have questions to ask. So with, with all this. I never, never thought I'd be the one to want to prolong a hearing. So uh, well, you're, you're doing a good job. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, thank Senator you. Shaheen. Uh, I understand Senator Merkley is on us uh, with us virtually, and then Senator Markey will be next. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Administrator Power. I wanted to uh, applaud the fact that you're working to have USID produce a climate strategy. When do we expect to see that? Um, I believe it, it is, uh, you are going to see it by October or November of, of this year, uh, this year, of course. Um, but let me get back to you on the precise timing. So in, in the past, we've often associated um, economic development with the production of more electric power in countries and supported various fossil fuel strategies to produce that electric power. Will we completely pivot away from supporting uh, the expansion of uh, fossil fuel development of, of electricity generation? I'm not hearing you perfectly, but um, but our certainly this administration's emphasis absolutely is on transitioning uh, away from uh, fossil fuels and and to clean energy solutions. That's uh, our emphasis in Power Africa. I'm a, the vice chair of the Development Financing Corporation. That is absolutely the objective, as you know, uh, of uh, new projects and initiatives uh, that DFC is pursuing. So that is certainly the strategic thrust of, of uh, everything we are doing in terms of transition uh, in the in the you know in, in our energy dialogues partnerships also in encouraging regulatory changes because that's something USAID missions do well and apart from uh, technological tools uh, but but that is we, we know we're running right. out of time. So uh, I'm going to speak more loudly. Uh, that's better. Thank you. Better. Yes. Uh, so there has to be absolute clarity here. We cannot continue to encourage the world to develop new sources of fossil fuels to power new electric power generation plants. Uh, the, if you compare the last 30 years, the previous 30 years, the, the changes are dramatic. Uh, and it, it is absolutely savaging the western part of the United States, uh, where I come from, from, from Oregon. Uh, we now live in fear of, of summer and the fire season and the, the, the droughts that are uh, having such a huge impact. So in your role with DFC, the um, individuals within DFC have indicated they plan to continue to finance natural gas projects. Will you, in your role, say that has to come to an end? Well, my... My understanding, uh, Senator, and maybe, maybe I should just get back to you on this, but is that that is, again, the objective for DFC as well. What I don't know is, in terms of projects in the pipeline, you know, what their obligations are. But, but, um, but I mean, that is absolutely at the position of, of President Biden that we have to move in that direction, and it's, it's my position as well. 
Well, and let me note that the climate impacts are having a massive uh, impact on human health across the world. And so when we think of the mission of USAID of improving the health and welfare of people around this country, it's just essential that USAID adopt a, a strategy in this, this climate strategy of a full transition to renewable energy and away from, from fossil fuels. Otherwise, we're just tending to continue to promote the strategy that has, is bringing the disaster we're facing right now. And every report coming out shows more and more people are becoming climate refugees. It, it cuts, like COVID, climate change uh, effects are now cutting across literally every single aspect of USAID's programming uh, in a crushing way. So I, I, I agree completely, and I should say, and should have said at this outset, that, of course, I'm working very closely with uh, Secretary Kerry and his team as they build out their diplomatic push to get countries to make the kinds of commitments they need to make so that USAID can swoop in behind and provide the programmatic support uh, to facilitate those transitions. A huge part of what we do, though, Senator, as you know, is also just deal with the harms and how to mitigate the damage caused by the increasing temperatures that we already see, including through heat-resistant seeds and the kind of research we do in food security. Uh, because already the, the famine numbers, the displacement numbers, the conflict numbers, they're, they're all already rooted in uh, scarcer natural resources and uh, by virtue of hotter climates and more extreme weather events. Well, and you're absolutely correct about the, the connection between what we do and, and what Senator Kerry is doing. And as he works with the world to have people pivot off of fossil fuels, it completely undermines uh, his efforts if we are continuing to develop fossil fuel resources domestically, or if we're promoting it through USAID or through the Development Finance Corporation. So many countries are less well off than we are. And for, for us to say, well, uh, we, we're going to continue to develop things here at home, uh, but we want you to stop and pivot to renewables. Isn't, doesn't put a lot of weight behind the moral authority of the vision that uh, Senator Kerry is working uh, Secretary Kerry, Administrator Kerry, Ambassador Kerry is working <laughs> to uh, advocate uh, uh, for uh, around the world. And with, without U.S. leadership in this, we're in complete trouble. So I just, I'll look with great interest to your climate strategy. I'll really encourage you to use your leverage with the Development Finance Corporation for them to end their fossil fuel uh, investments and support, which they tell me they want to keep doing. And I'd like to hear a very different answer coming from them in the future. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, I am very pleased, just following up on what Senator Merkley was talking about, I am very pleased um, that uh, there's a request for $600 million uh, for bilateral climate change programming within the budget request. Uh, Asia is by far the part of the world that is most disaster prone. Um, it experiences twice uh, as many uh, severe uh, storms, uh, major floods uh, as the Americas are uh, Africa. And between 2008 and 2018, more than 80% of all disaster-related displacements occurred in the 
uh, Indo-Pacific region. Um, can you speak about how USAID is planning to mobilize that funding uh, with those countries? Um, because after all, it was, in fact, um, the devastating tsunami in 2014 that created uh, the Quad format consisting of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India uh, to put together humanitarian response. So could you talk about uh, what the vision is that uh, AID has for uh, working in partnership with these countries uh, on climate-related disasters in the Indo-Asia Indo area? Um, well, <clears throat> let me... Let me attempt to, uh, while noting that, the, that your question is actually more complicated than, than it would seem, because we have in the budget request, as you noted, a request for an increase, unsurprisingly, uh, from the last administration as it relates to uh, climate-specific uh, funding. But bear in mind also, Senator Markey, that, that our emergency funding request, our, our Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs request, is also really uh, the product of climate-related emergencies now informing the number of emergencies that we have to respond to. So there's, there's conflicts, of course, so many conflicts are themselves related, as we were just talking about, uh, you know, to climate-related scarcity and so forth. But I mention that because it, it, it is not only our climate and environmental programming and what we might do, for example, you know, to help a country transition to clean energy sources or how we might uh, enhance disaster uh, resilience of the kind that we've done in Central America, you know, where a hurricane strikes and far fewer people die now than, than died at a, with comparable hurricanes uh, striking a decade ago. All of that's incredibly important, but when it comes to just getting out the gate when those harms have taken, taken hold, and I wasn't aware of the, the stat that you just described in terms of that decade of... Uh, again, disparate impact of, of extreme weather events in that region, but that makes it likely that our Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs funding is likely to be steered in, in managing those, those crises. Uh, that money would allow us to respond to uh, disasters annually in more than 70 countries, which is what we now have to <laughs> crazily uh, bake into our calculation uh, by virtue of conflict but also of this surging number of extreme weather events. No, thank you. Um, can I just turn quickly, if I could, to Haiti? Um, after Hurricane Maria hit in 2017, September of 2017, I went down to see what the conditions were. And uh, clearly AID was central in helping these people through that disaster. But at the same time, they were still suffering from the legacy of the UN troops in 2010, bringing cholera for the first time in their history into their country. And uh, it has affected hundreds of thousands of people in that country. And now they're in, a, uh, in another crisis uh, down, in, uh, down in Haiti. Could you talk about a little bit, if you could, about the role you see, you see AID playing um, now uh, during this particularly difficult time for the country? Thank you. Well, just really quickly, I mean, I think one can't decouple the diplomacy from the development humanitarian assistance, not that, not that you would, but, you know, in terms of root causes, there has to be a path to political unity. There has to be a recognized government now in the wake of this horrific uh, assassination. There has to be a roadmap to legislative and presidential elections, and USAID will support, of course, uh, the effort to get to elections uh, uh, as soon as possible, as soon as practical and as soon as possible. 
Um, uh, I think we, we have a role, of course, in strengthening Haiti's, or seeking to strengthen Haiti's sanitation. We provided, I think, 300,000 food vouchers last year. Um, we uh, have uh, expanded access to healthcare, working in 164 clinics, which reaches 4 million of the 11 million people in Haiti, I gather. So there's that kind of core health and sanitation and other development investments, and then alongside the emergency responses, uh, because with Haiti especially, you know, what, what the country has always struggled with and, and our investments have never, uh, you know, redressed in a, in a durable way is, is resilience, is this ability to withstand a shock, uh, whether a hurricane, an earthquake, or uh, a depravity uh, like, like this assassination. So that is our emphasis, and, and perhaps there'll be more resources now available for that as people focus on Haiti again, as we unfortunately tend to do in, in, in society, at least, in, in cyclical ways, even as USAID is on the ground throughout. Thank you, and I, and I do agree with you that after years of assistance, uh, it's not brought democracy or stability to uh, Haiti, and we just can't continue down the same path expecting a different result. So we just have to have a new way in which we relate to that country as we move forward. And, um, and I think we're very fortunate to have someone uh, like you uh, who has this job, not just for that situation, but for every other one of these crises across the planet that are humanitarian uh, crises that uh, need U.S. help. So thank you so much for all your great work. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Administrator, uh, there's a, I'm going to just rattle off a series of things uh, because of time constraints. Uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you afterwards. There's a vote going on on the floor. Uh, Certainly, in Cuba, we're seeing unprecedented pro-democracy protests as courageous Cuban men and women are demanding change in their country and enter the dictatorship. They're being met with violence by the regime, uh, bloody violence. Uh, I want to uh, follow up with you on how part of our uh, Cuba democracy uh, grants come through USAID, about six million or so. So I want to follow up on how USAID can strengthen its existing programs to support uh, the efforts of the Cuban people uh, to, to be more free. I'm concerned that with what's happened in Armenia, uh, I mean with Azerbaijan and Turkey's aggression towards Armenia, that the request uh, doesn't meet the humanitarian challenge that has existed in the exodus of people who have had to flee to Armenia. Uh, it looks so low, so I want to follow up with you uh, on that issue. Uh, I'd like to follow up on you on our priorities for the U.S.-Columbia relationship, which is right now in a very difficult set of circumstances, one of our closest partners in Latin America, a strong bipartisan support for that relationship. But there's a series of challenges the country is facing with the overflow from Venezuela and others. And then lastly, uh, I certainly want to follow up with you on the questions of uh, uh, your trip to Central America, uh, plus what we're seeing uh, in the hemisphere. For example, I, I support the decision that AID made with reference uh, to changing uh, some of our funding as it relates to um, uh, the actions of President Bukele. Uh, I think there has to be consequences uh, for such uh, actions, uh, but I'd, I'd like to get a sense of how and what standards we're going to create to restore 
uh, funding for its original purpose uh, so that we can set clear markers to uh, those in the hemisphere. Uh, we stand to help your people, but you can ultimately do what you're doing if you want our help. Uh, so just a few uh, items that I will follow up with you. They're all important. Um, and uh, we thank you uh, for your service. We thank you for your very uh, elaborate testimony today. Uh, the record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.